It's a warm welcome again into the Emerging Cricket Podcast online add-on Sport FM in Perth. Daniel Beswick alongside Nick Skinner for this week's episode. Nick from Reykjavik, how's things over there? Oh, well enough. Uh, been a pretty miserable couple of days, but uh, provisionally employed, I guess you could say, depending on some paperwork going through with the relevant uh, government bureaucracies. But uh, yeah, things seem to be progressing quite well now. Like it. What is the uh, what's the situation? Well, I'm working at a cafe, which is literally two minutes walk from my house, so that's very convenient for me. Yeah, it beats uh, Terrigal on a frosty uh, winter's morning, I'd wager. Mm, nice and cozy in there too, so that's good. <laughs> in the in the summer months, uh, hopefully, we'll be joining you as someone who is uh, overseas and away from our land of Australia. Come the weekend, exciting news in that I'm on my way to Vanuatu to meet our friend Tim, mm. um, and also with some. T20 World Cup qualifications on the horizon uh, in the East Asia Pacific region, which we'll talk about probably on next week's show, although I will be in a remote part of Farte and I don't know if I'm going to be around. But that's future emerging cricket podcast problems because because we've got things going on throughout, well, everywhere around the world where cricket is being played. And we'll start with the Asia Cup and after our opinionated Thoughts, I suppose, I suppose we'll say after uh, UAE's decision-making in terms of the captaincy, they were favourites for the Asia Cup qualifier only to lose out to Hong Kong, who went undefeated in the competition. Uh, Shout-out as well to Kuwait, who also had a pretty decent campaign uh, when all is said and done. And we'll talk a little bit about some Singapore news in a moment with some uh, player movements, shall we say. But uh, to start with Hong Kong, uh, the victors of the Asia Cup qualifier, they go on and play India and Pakistan at the Asia Cup 2022. By the time people are listening to this, I think both of those matches will have already been played. So with the benefit of hindsight, you guys will be able to tell us how all of that went. But uh, I think a pretty just reward for a Hong Kong side who are on a rebuild of their own accord. I know we talked about UAE's progress over the years and, and what they've been doing in the last three years to really make that region their own, but need to give a, a proper shout to Hong Kong here. A lot of the guys staying on after that miserable campaign in 2019 at World Cricket League 2. Scott McKechnie back with the gloves on, making himself available for Hong Kong again, but... A number of the key guys showing up, the likes of Kinshit Shah, Nizakit Khan, Baba Hyatt as well. A couple of mainstays, or a few mainstays of the Hong Kong outfit. And a pretty good bowling display from the likes of Ersan Khan leading the tournament in terms of wickets as well. This is a Hong Kong team that sort of looks like the Hong Kong team of old. And whether or not they can cause an upset like they did in 2014 against Bangladesh at the T20 World Cup uh, remains to be seen. But... A good result for Hong Kong and, and maybe good signs of, uh, of things for them uh, in terms of going forward in the region. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked about Singapore and, and we'll get to that with um, Tim David missing. But yeah, Hong Kong just seems to be missing that one sort of little sprinkling of star power that Anchi Rath really brought. And, and he obviously being such a top quality batter. And, you know, thinking back to the Asia Cup um, last time when uh, when Hong Kong played India, Anchi Rath was um, instrumental in that chase that almost got them over the line but you know after putting on 170 odd for the first wicket they uh, they couldn't quite get there but um yeah this this tournament is is more a sort of a triumph of um of consistency really they you know they just did enough to get over the line against Kuwait and 
you know, the UAE sort of self-destructed with, uh, you know, the Ahmed Razist stuff. Yeah, we can do a post-mortem if we really must. But uh, yeah, Yassim Murtaza, who's a relatively new sort of entrant into the national team, Tim was talking about a little while ago, he, he'd sort of um, seen him play in club cricket and, and you know, he's he's a quality player and he's uh, coming through into the national team and, and slotting right in. But uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you look at the guys here and it's mostly the same side that was uh, pretty disappointing, if we're honest, in the last leg of the Challenge League and, and really faded away. So it was good that they've bounced back. And, you know, if, if they're able to just put together some more consistent performances and rather than, you know, being a bit boom or bust consistency especially going forward in you know there's a lot of t20 world cups uh coming up uh, down the pipeline there's obviously um whatever comes next after the challenge league you know that that's still an open question so uh, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of their 50 over future but yeah i mean they've, they've they've got guys like scott mckechnie who i think brings a lot both in terms of being a quality loveman but also just the energy around the team and having scott there uh, does help to to pep them up um, he, he's a great addition to, well, to any side, but to, especially to this Hong Kong side, which does seem to lack something. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a funny one with Trent Johnston as well. He's been there a little while. Things seem to be kind of falling into place and, and getting a bit more stability for him. But you know, how good Hong Kong really are, I guess the litmus test will be at the Asia cup and, and it'll be interesting to see how they go against Pakistan and India who are, yeah, clearly a, a class above where they've been playing down in the challenge league recently. I uh, want to bring up there was a pretty unsavoury piece of journalism, to use uh, inverted commas again, (laughs) describing the Hong Kong team as a team of expats and a group of players that couldn't play domestic cricket in India and Pakistan. And again, it's just a, a very problematic sweeping statement to make and we've heard it from Tim obviously being an ex-CEO of, of Hong Kong Cricket who's told us several times about you know just how many of the players in Hong Kong have grown up for, for most of their lives in that part of the world all were born there all learned majority of their cricket in Hong Kong and it's remiss to, to make that statement even just to judge someone by their name or nationality or you know the color of their skin it, it, it cuts into a very deep problem that cricket and Associate cricket, I think, needs to put its hand up and acknowledge that it's been a problem in associate cricket a long time and in terms of the eligibility rules and and stuff like that. It lends itself to these really negative conversations that, that need to be stamped out because, you know, quite frankly, a lot of these players have grown up in Hong Kong, have learned their cricket in Hong Kong, and it'd be very unfair to make the statement that, you know, these are guys that just can't get into, you know, India and, and Pakistan teams the addition of Yasin Murtaza has been such a boon for this team. And I know he's 31 years of age and, and he is somewhat of an exception in that he has come over a little bit later on in his adult life to, to, to live in Hong Kong and to, to play cricket. But he's certainly a great addition to the team. And I want to give a shout out to Ayu Shukla, 19 years of age, fast bowler for Hong Kong. He's been one of the, the standout performers and, and a sign of the, the new crop coming through. Uh, university student and hearing um, or reading Trent Johnston's comments in Quick Info this week talking about, you know, what these guys have to actually do to, you know, make sure their lives are sustainable just to be able to play some 
cricket for their country. You know, you have to remember after World Cricket League 2 and not keeping their one-day international status that they lose a bucket load of funding. And, you know, that goes back to the likes of potential central contracts that go by the wayside. And a lot of these guys, he, he said, have, have been doing basically side hustles of, of delivery driving. We know people like Kinchit Shah, he's in the jewellery business. Scott McKechnie's running his own business now, relocated to the UK after coaching in Singapore. So there are a lot of cool stories in this Hong Kong team, but the deep underlying part of all of it is that these guys work very hard to represent the country that they love of Hong Kong. Country, again, in inverted commas, given its uh, its sort of position in, in the world between... Uh, <laughs> oh, we, we don't need to get into that. As an old UK territory and being, you know, a China special administrative region, I think the wording is. But it's a great story. And, you know, if they are to, to improve and, and going into future qualifications, you know, they'll make life difficult for a number of teams in the Asia region, which, you know, as we've seen, has become a real hotbed of late in, in terms of um, nurturing talent and, and providing, you know, some really good cricket in that region. It's good that this level of quality is still there in the Asia region, even at the kind of sort of second level down. And we do often forget about Hong Kong with, or, or you know, UAE and Nepal being a bit more of the story a lot of the time. But yeah, you, we can't can't write them off. And as we saw, you know, they bowled the UAE out for 147, chased it down eight wickets in hand over to spare, pretty comfortable stuff. Um, I just want to, you know, no Ahmed Raza in that last match. That They just looked a bit lost. And I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I know we talked about the captaincy stuff last week. But, yeah, I don't know. Where to now for UAE? They do have they do have some Cricket World Cup League 2 stuff uh, coming down the pipeline. Uh, hopefully, they're able to sort of regroup before then. Because, you know, if they're still in this level of disarray by, by the time they have to play some, they'll really struggle. Uh, but, yeah. Doesn't look good for them at the moment. As you say, Q8 was a good story. They're another one of those emerging teams in the Gulf, uh, which is sort of uh, coming through as a, as a really competitive area with, a, you know, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, UAE. So there's, there's a lot of high-quality cricket being played in the region. And looking towards the future, it could be uh, another one of those, you know, a, a bit like some of those uh, European tournaments where you get teams that are in geographic proximity playing a lot of cricket around uh, against each other and, and sort of building each other up. You know, we saw there was a, a GCC tournament um, on the women's side last year, which was which was quite good. So if, you know, if those links can keep being built between the cricket teams that are that are on the way up, I think they can only help improve each other and, and improve the quality of cricket there, you know, and, and obviously the overall standard, but also uh, especially in that Asia region, which remains the, the sort of the, the premier cricketing region. And we know looking at the 2024 men's uh, T20 World Cup qualifying, it, it's certainly going to be cutthroat in the Asia region. And, you know, the addition of Kuwait only makes this just that little bit more difficult. UAE have a lot of things to think about come October when they play uh, the T20 World Cup here in Australia. There's certainly, and there will be plenty of questions internally in that camp at the moment, just with the results and quite frankly, with the players who were put out in the final two matches of this, you know, the likes of Raul Mustafa and Ahmed Raza not even making the 11, which yeah. makes you think that there are certainly more troubles in, in the team. And, and quite frankly, if they play like this at the T20 World Cup in October, they will be seriously embarrassed. And again, it will raise more questions about you know, these teams playing at this level and it will bring out the naysayers who say that, you know, why bother, you know, these associate teams playing at this level if they can't compete? Well, you know, you only have to look at what they were like in February and March during the T20 World Cup qualifier at the start of the year to show you what they're capable of. But 
now that team, outside of someone like Muhammad Wazim and Vrita Aravind at the top of the order, if they don't make runs and Basil Hamid doesn't make runs in the middle order, they're in serious trouble of, of being turned over in all three matches come the first round of this qualifier. Yeah, and, and just um, I, I guess you, you did we did sort of touch on that um, <laughs> that uh, that article that was doing the rounds in in you know in associate circles, basically entirely writing off Hong Kong uh, against India, and you know quotes like uh, KL Rahul couldn't have wished for an easier opposition to get his rhythm back, and saying things like India are getting ready to steamroll Minnows Hong Kong. Uh, you know, and as as you say, just these uh, very inaccurate uh, statements about how they're all expats and they, they you know they couldn't make it in Pakistan or, or India or whatever, which is by and large nonsense. They you know most of the Hong Kong side uh, have lived there for for you know most of their lives and and have come through the local system. So why these articles keep getting published? I just don't understand, you know, it's the press trust of India, so it's not, you know, some total rando, you know, posting up a blog or whatever. And I just don't understand why these people who clearly know nothing about Hong Kong cricket feel the need to make these comments. I I, I just don't get it, you know. I mean, you know, every time we do the podcast, I, I always get the, you know, get get all the matches up, get the scorecards up, look into who the players are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know, if we can do that level of basic research every week surely if you're writing one article about hong kong you can bother to find out where their players come from i don't know it just doesn't make sense to me it's just these lazy narratives that keep keep continuing and and you know it doesn't matter how many times they get corrected it just seems like it doesn't doesn't sink in and and even from back when tim was you know ceo in hong kong he was still trying to fight off these inaccurate narratives and and correct people about how you know the, the team's mostly produced through the local's domestic system and we're just still hearing the same stories again and again and again and, and I, I just I wonder what it would take to actually break through and uh, yeah I, I don't know, it's just very frustrating that added to all the other serious challenges that associates face and you know you talked about the Hong Kong guys having to balance work and, and playing cricket for their well country I guess and you know on top of that then you just have all these naysayers who can't be bothered doing any research and totally write off the team in the process and it's just very frustrating you know for people who supposedly uh you know are cricket fans they can't even be bothered finding out about cricket elsewhere that last point of yours is the bit that really grinds my gears you know for a sport that's so heavily invested on and people are so keen on knowing all the stats and knowing all the records there is this weird contradiction in cricket fans sometimes where it's almost cool not to know anything and to kind of write sentences like this in nonchalance. I've never really understood it. I mean... Nothing more than a glorified net session. There we go. Yeah, again, I just... I don't understand what they're trying to achieve. I mean, especially when it's a wide news service. It's not like they're competing for clicks. It's not like they're competing for business. You know, that's not what they're about. So it, it confuses me to no end what the end game is in all of it, but you made a really good point on it and I, I don't think I really need to say anything more. There is some semi-breaking news that has come to hand in the last day or so in that Australia has announced their T20 World Cup squad for their home title defence and a lot of people are wondering why are we bringing up the Australian T20 squad for a World Cup on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. The simple answer is that Tim David has been selected in it. Formerly, of course, of Singapore. He's played 14 T20 internationals for Singapore. 
scored over 2,000 runs at a strike rate of over 160 on the T20 domestic circuit. Uh, definitely fills a hole in the Australian team. But I think it's a, a point that we need to raise or a conversation that we need to have, Nick, is that this is not the first time something like this has happened. Uh, we've seen the likes of Owen Morgan and, and others make the switch. Hayden Walsh Jr. is another one who is, has done it as well. You can't really fault Tim David here in that you know he's not on a Cricket Australia contract, so it's not as if he's doing it for money. It, it's pretty much a similar sort of comparison if he was to stay on at Singapore. It's just that he's making all this money on the franchise side and he's got a legitimate chance of winning a World Cup for one of the countries that he identifies with and that being Australia. You know, he is a, a man who was born in Singapore to a father who also played international cricket for Singapore. Uh, he lived quite a bit of his life in Perth. He identifies as both, you know, being as a citizen and as a resident of Singapore while also being Australian. You know, it, it's not difficult for us to comprehend that people can have more than one nationality. Personally, I have no qualms with what he's done here. He's only chasing a dream of winning a, a T20 World Cup. We know once he does make that switch, it takes a very long time for him, for him to be eligible to play for uh, Singapore ever again. But this was really the worst kept secret in international cricket for a long time now. He didn't play for Singapore at Qualifier B. He didn't play for Singapore in the Challenge League. And for all intents and purposes, it looks as if we weren't going to see him play for Singapore again. So we might as well see him in the colours of Australia. And, you know, I, for one, welcome him to the Australian team. But if it was England or if it was India or Pakistan, I also don't see the problem with it either. If he identifies with that nationality and he's eligible for that country, to be honest, I can't really see why anyone would try and stop him. I mean, Tim David's an interesting one in that, yeah, as you say, his dad played for Singapore as well. So he's, he, he definitely has that lineage. And I think we talked about it uh, in a previous episode, but he was, you know, he was nowhere in the Australian scene until he played for Singapore. And yeah. I think some of his performances for Singapore helped him kind of get, get on the, the franchise circuit. And from there, he's only got better and better and better. And guys like Tim David, who are world-class players, they want to test themselves against the best. And we, we, we spend a lot of time watching uh, associate cricket. And, you know, if you're Tim David playing for Singapore, you're not testing yourself against the best in the world. That that much is clear. So if, if he wants to actually come up against the, the best bowlers and, and, you know, I don't know if he's going to roll the arm over, but, you know, bowl to the best batters and, and all of that, then playing for Australia is really the only option. Because even in franchise cricket, it's not really the best versus the best. You know, maybe as Tim David is kind of a, a forerunner of, of a future of cricket where it, it might be the best versus the best with, um, you know, as, as we see a lot of the time, club football uh, in, in, say, in Europe is um, is probably of a higher standard than most international football. But at the moment, international cricket, especially in a World Cup where teams are generally picking their absolute best teams, international cricket is still where you test yourself. And Tim David, as you allude to, he's not getting a central contract for Australia. So this isn't even a, a decision motivated by money. I think it's very much a decision motivated by a guy who wants to be the best and to test himself against the best um which is an entirely reasonable thing to do so and and i mean this is the thing with all these even with someone like owen morgan where he's he'd always wanted to play for england again because it's it's the best and and also because it's a more stable uh career than, than playing for an irish cricketer especially when he was coming through the problem is never any of the individuals making a decision that's best for them you know, good luck to Tim David, good luck to Owen Morgan, good luck to whoever. The The problem is having a, a structure that, you know, doesn't provide for someone coming through the associate game 
really to have a career unless they align themselves with a with a full member and and that's more of the problem so tim david i think probably had a bit of a a bit of an advantage in the sense that you know he was nowhere in the australian domestic scene but he was a known quantity in the sense that he you know as you say played a fair bit in perth people kind of knew who he was he was around that system and you know if you're a franchise team you know looking to select a side yes he's played for singapore but you kind of have that oh well you know he he's played in australia he must be good which is something that we've talked about a lot um, that that mentality so he he did have that kind of i guess security blanket in a way even if i would say that his performances for singapore were really uh, what put him on the map uh, yeah so the, the the real problem is that there's no pathway for people who don't have that uh, full member safety blanket if you will you know, if they don't have that, then then it's a lot more difficult for them to break into any of the kind of franchise leagues and, and you know, get on that circuit. And, in, you know, in a way, if, if Tim David could have done that without having any Australian connections, that would have been a huge step forward for associate cricket. And, you know, maybe maybe one day in the future we will we will see that where people get picked through their performances in associate cricket and, you know, there isn't that stigma. But at the moment, the, the real problem is not that any individual is is doing what's best for their career the the problem is that there's no capacity for an associate player to really do that you know without jumping ship as it were uh moving on and, and talking about some other cricket that has gone on and with repercussions for future T20 World Cups after 2022 Nepal traveled to Kenya uh, for a five-match T20I series at the Gymkhana Ground in Nairobi. Now, there was a couple of motives for Nepal to make this trip. One was to obviously get some match practice because the Nepal national team criminally do not play enough matches at the elite level at home, whether it be domestically or internationally. So it was good for them on that front. But deep down, I think they wanted... Uh, Perhaps a stronger result here. They did win the series 3-2. I think they were aiming for a 4-1 or a 5-0 victory in the hope that they would gain a ranking point or two to really make a push towards the top 12 on the ICC T20I men's rankings. The reason for that being that for the 2024 tournament at the mid-November cutoff, which is basically straight after the 2022 T20 World Cup, the teams outside the top eight that finish at the t 20 World Cup of 2022. I hope I've still got you, uh, listeners. The top eight finishers gain automatic entry with the next uh, three best T20I teams on the rankings. This is assuming that uh, the West Indies make that top eight. Uh, will also gain spots into the competition as well. The rest have to go through continental qualification under the new system. We know, as we talked about with the Asia Cup conversation that qualifying for Asia is going to be really difficult. And to be honest, if you're Nepal, you're probably hoping and praying that even UAE can make a run at this thing because, you know, to have them automatically qualify frees probably a spot up for continental qualification. And that's even before we think about the likes of Bangladesh, Afghanistan, uh, Sri Lanka uh, as well, who, you know, are quite possibly going to be on that bubble as well and potentially having to go through continental qualifying. So with all that in mind, and you know, if you need to go back and, and rewind and listen to that again just to kind of get an understanding of, of what's going on, feel free to do so. But <laughs> to bring it to the uh, the series, it was actually closely fought when it came down to just action on the field. There were a couple of great performances, especially with the bat at times, the likes of Raket Patel kept things really interesting and, and kept Kenya in the game, certainly. Nepal's batting, or, or poor batting, I should say, probably helped in all of that as well. 
uh, Sandeep Malmichani took a five-wicket haul on a losing side, which uh, I can't imagine happens too often at, at, at this level of the game. But it was also Manoj Prabhakar's first outing as, as coach, Nick, and I'm sure you've got plenty of points to make. But yeah, look, I think uh, Nepal could take a lot out of this series, but so too Kenya, who were able to sort of jag two wins against a team... Uh, 15 spots or something higher than them on the uh, on the T20I rankings. Yeah, I think this will probably end up being more helpful for Kenya uh, in terms of the rankings than it was for Nepal. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be too reactive about Prabhaka, you know, give him, you know, it's his first series, we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not a, an auspicious start. I, I don't know. I mean, Kenya, we, we sort of forget about them because they do, you know, they are languishing around that sort of 30 mark or so in the rankings and, and they've been pretty anonymous in the Challenge League as well. You know, it, it's a far cry from the glory days, you know, a couple of decades ago when they were making World Cup semifinals. But, um, you know, they still have some handy players. As you um, as you allude to there, Reket Patel and, and Irfan Karim both had their moments. That match where Sandeep took five for nine, bowled Kenya out for 101 and, and Nepal's batting just couldn't get over the line. I mean, yeah, that's... Um, and especially, you know, Sandeep being captain as well. I talk about not getting, you know, support from from his uh, from his colleagues. I, I mean, it, it's it's funny to say, but I think Kenya w- would probably be pretty happy. And even though they lost the series, you, you see the emergence of a guy like uh, Vraj Patel, who uh, came through the under 19s system, and we saw him bowl very well in in some underage cricket in Africa. Left arm orthodox bowler, uh, and and he was. Um, Probably the standout bowler of this uh, this whole series. Uh, on either side, he took ten wickets in the in the five matches, average of eight point seven and a economy rate of four point five, uh, which is you know noticeably better than anyone else. Yeah, Nepal's batting I, <laughs> it's it's always been that's kind of the perennial question for them, isn't it? <laughs> um, you, you know, how much do we read into this? Is this kind of just uh, a, a, I don't know. I mean, even someone like Dependra Singh Ire, who has struggled a lot in the fifty over format he wasn't really scoring runs although he, he bowled pretty well to be fair depending on re but yeah he really struggled with the bat in this series Rohit Patel was okay um yeah there wasn't a whole lot of support get Andrew Muller again yeah he was okay he took them to victory in in that last game but yeah some pretty underwhelming uh numbers for the rest of the uh Nepali batters and at, at what point I mean we we talk about how they chop and change their batting lineup a lot and and that was certainly happening here is it is it worth just you know sticking to a lineup for you know let's say a, a, a sort of a, a you know year eighteen month period and just have basically six guys who are going to play almost every game and kind of make an assessment from there rather than not really giving people enough of a of, of an opportunity and I mean this is this will be interesting to see how you know <laughs> what Manoj Prabhakar's uh, approach will be after obviously Pabudu uh, resigned a, a month or two ago to to coach Canada. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Nepal, yeah, where do they go from here? Uh, they, I think you're right in that they were probably trying to be a bit clever with the rankings, but that obviously backfired. It'll be interesting to see how the 50-over matches go. They've got three one-day matches coming up um, over the next sort of week or so. And, you know, given where Kenya are and where Nepal are, you know, in terms of Kenya being basically nowhere in the Challenge League and Nepal being kind of middle of the table in, in League 2, that's a pretty big gap in class, at least on paper. So... If Nepal don't win that series pretty comfortably, I think there will be a lot of questions being asked about, you know, what they, you know, what's going on. Um, yeah, 
The other point I would make is that the Nairobi Gymkhana has uh, has certainly seen better days. Uh, we could put it that way, um, but um, you know they they still got in a couple of decent crowds and and had a good atmosphere in in some of those matches, and it was good to see it streamed. So you know, good effort on that front, and, and hopefully you know this series giving the Kenyan fans something to <laughs> something to cheer about at least um, is is good for the game there as well. I'm really glad you brought it up, Nick, and I know this is a consequence of having multiple coaches over the last two years or even 18 months, but just looking at, at Stats Guru just quickly as you were making that point, Nepal have played 27 players from January 1, 2021 to the time of recording. There's just no continuity there. How can you experience T20i cricket? How can you gain any sort of rhythm? when there is such chopping and changing in this team, there are players in the Nepali group who have already essentially lived out an entire career in the space of 18 months. They get overhyped. They make heaps of runs in their debut match or their first series. They make, they're make hyped up as the new great bat of Nepali cricket. And within half a dozen games, they get dropped and then sent into the wilderness and you never hear about them again. You know, the likes of someone like Kushal Bertel, he's almost lived three careers in the space of... 18 months at this point. Yeah, what happened to him? You know, at one stage he looked like (laughs) the messiah of opening batting for Nepal and now, you know, he can't get a game against Kenya and I I don't think any of it's really particularly his fault. Um, There there are a couple of guys' names here and it's just, it's been so hard to actually keep up with who's in the team, who's out of the team, who's out of favour. There are guys in Nepali cricket who are under 18 years of age, who probably feel like an outcast in the national system already because they made runs, they came into the side, they look the goods, again, they show quite a bit about them, and then they have two or three bad innings, they get thrown thrown out, and because there's no domestic cricket or not enough domestic cricket... Yeah, that's a huge they part ...they can't of it. make the case of getting back into the team. And that's massive, and we will see a very interesting scenario come the end of the year where we've got the Everest Premier League and the new Nepali League coming in. But what can you do if you're one of those players? So many of those players must feel so disillusioned about elite cricket and international cricket if if this is the way they are to be treated. And, you know, the governing body and a lot of people need to stand up and, and answer a few questions being asked of them and the way that the situation's being managed because there's quite clearly something wrong happening in the country at the moment. And a lot of faceless people are, quite frankly, not doing a very good job of helping the organization run in its existence. Would it have helped if the organization was a little bit better to keep the likes of Dav Watmore or of Pabudu Dasanaika? We don't know that for sure, but it's pretty clear to see that there's something not right. And, And we've been saying it almost for three years now. The team's been good when there has been continuity. You know, when the likes of Paris Kadka was still running the team and... Sandeep was just coming through and you had an 11 that was pretty well set and yeah okay they probably didn't play enough domestic cricket and the team certainly had its flaws but at least they were still churning out some pretty decent results I look at this team now and it can be this the same in the 50 over game as well with all this chopping and changing there is no rhythm and batting has been the problem but again, if you if you don't give people a chance, if you don't give people a prolonged run out in the middle, they can't build and develop. And ultimately, it, it just cripples the mind of every single player who's been in the system trying to do something special because, you know, they're having to chop and change their own game too, mu- too much to try and ensure that they can get a spot in the team. There's no chance you can do that. And there's just no chance it's ever sustainable when you're just making these many changes. 
Yeah, the point about the domestic cricket, I think, is one of the, the key parts of the puzzle here in that, as you say, they bring in guys who look good maybe through the junior ranks because there's a decent amount of junior cricket. That's the only way you can find talent. Yeah, but then once they... A lot of, you know, someone like a Dependra Singh Iree, you, you probably can make the case that he deserves to be dropped. But then, you know, where does he go? You know, where, what does he do to impress the selectors to come back? You, there's just, they don't have that pathway that they need. And that's why coming back to the decision about the new T20 league that the board's running, it just seems like a, a distraction and, and a bit of a waste of time when they already have a number of private T20 leagues floating around. The board should be filling the gap in, in terms of the domestic scene and, and, you know, providing pathways for players to go back to domestic cricket, find some form, make their way back into the national t- team rather than just having this constant fluctuations of, <laughs> as, as yeah, we've almost had three whole teams, you know, over the last, yeah, 18 months to two year period, which is not helpful at all to any kind of stability or, or it's not really that surprising that they're struggling a bit uh, in, in terms of their results on the field. Uh, again, it's it's the point that we have made so many times, but one point that was made actually on Twitter was by one of our very own, Tom Grunshaw, was that they try so hard to find a coach that comes from a full member or one that has such full member experience. But in terms of running the game from an, ad- an administrative level, there's never been that endeavour, so much so that they've actually gone the other way and they've said, oh, look, we only want Nepalis running Nepali cricket. Well, you know, if you keep finding yourself in this situation where the game doesn't grow, you need to look at the common denominator and it, the common denominator is that the game has been run in a poor state. You know, not so long ago, Nepal cricket was banned by the ICC for government interference and I really struggled to see what's changed ever since that ban was actually lifted, what's been changed. And, you know, they still have one predominant international ground and it looks like it's going to be that for for quite some time. I'd love to know who's on the gravy train in the Cricket Association of Nepal because they're absolutely laughing and, and no one's been able to overthrow them, quite frankly, because it's been a largely autocratic process and, and there's been no way of, of anyone being ousted. And there are people in Nepali media and, and Nepali cricket say Twitter, let's call them personalities or part of the associate cricket union over the years. And you can just tell that they're exhausted and they've almost just given up fighting for what they think is right in Nepali cricket. You know, you you can tell that someone like that Rajan Shah, Momo Cricket, is just at his wits end trying to explain the same thing over and over again and hoping that something changes and nothing ever does. And I'm sure he's exhausted by it and I, I don't blame him. And I'm kind of in the same boat where... We've all had such high hopes in Nepali cricket, and again, it just keeps coming back to the same conversation over and over again. And it's the Ned Flanders line from The Simpsons, you know. Oh, sorry, it's Ned Flanders' dad when when Ned is is having a troublesome upbringing. We tried nothing, man, and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> That's essentially what Nepal cricket kind of feels like, to be honest, from the outside, anyway. Well, yeah, and. <laughs> The point about only having administrators from Nepal is is an interesting one because you know they've cycled through so many CEOs and general managers and whatever else you want to call them. I mean, how many people involved in the Nepali administrative world are there that they can try? You know, at, at some point you've got to, if doing the same thing hasn't worked, you've got to try something different and maybe look further afield than than Nepal. I don't know. Is it just that there is talent in Nepal, um, but they're steering clear of um, of cricket because they just <laughs> they see how much of a, of a mess it is and they don't want to get involved and, and so they you know they can't attract the actual competent administrators I don't know it's it, at some point yeah you just got to try something new and and they just haven't 
Yeah, we wait, not necessarily with bated breath because we would die of a lack of oxygen, but we it remains to be seen uh, what, what can be done in that space. Let's move on before we make this into the uh, Nepali Cricket podcast. And, and look, we could talk about Nepali Cricket for an hour, but, you know, again, we'd only be turning ourselves inside out on this vicious cycle. Uh, some good news on the women's side in that the Netherlands made a return to one-day international cricket after being handed back international status. And we did talk about that in, the, in a previous show, but... It's been good to see them back uh, on the field playing women's one-day international cricket. Probably not the series that they would have wanted playing against Ireland and being comprehensively beaten, but to bring it back to a, an age-old conversation, you know, you can only improve by playing, you know, those above you and, and, and you know, trying to beat them. They were comprehensively beaten, as mentioned, and a number of senior Irish players who have been able to play a little bit more elite cricket really stood up and, and, and showed the, the golf in class. But... It's a start, again, of sorts for, for Dutch women's cricket and, and ultimately a step in the right direction, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it's always better um, to, to be playing matches than to not be playing matches, which over the last sort of little while, Dutch cricket, especially on the women's side, um, they've, they've struggled to get on the field. So I'm not going to criticise them for getting on the field, that's for sure. Um, I think, I mean, looking at how easily Ireland beat them, you know, they, they won inside 20 overs by over 200 runs and then they chased 180 odd in in 35 overs that's pretty comprehensive as you said i mean i don't think the netherlands are really on the upward swing they're the kind of i mean you know you look sort of historically they've they've been better in the 90s they had some decent outings in the women's world cups they beat the west indies they beat sri lanka you know in the past they have been better and we we had an interesting conversation with Bertus de Jong a couple of days ago about you know how the, the impact of hockey and and how that's kind of squeezed out some level of the the women's game uh in the Netherlands over the last little while and and in terms of uh you know the the season encroaching and and players not really playing both sports and and all those kinds of things so i guess the Netherlands are, are kind of more in the rebuilding side of things um I mean, Ireland are a good team at this level. Uh, the top four run scorers and five of the top six uh, wicket takers in this series were all Irish. So that should give you an idea of the, the level of dominance. But does Netherlands have the, the, the domestic production to, to get better? Uh, do they need to kind of go back to the drawing board and, and figure out a way to attract you know talented athletes back to cricket like they had back in in the 90s where they had a, a pretty competitive team um i don't know or could they could they maybe look into the the thailand model and and re- actively recruit athletes um because yeah i mean they recently uh struggled to beat namibia in a series i, I think it was ended up being 3-2 uh a five match series ended up being 3-2 to the netherlands um but they you know they did struggle and and that last match that they won was a um you know, a, a last ball thriller. Um, so if they're not beating Namibia, who don't have that pedigree, and, and a, a, especially on the women's side, a, a much newer team in terms of their domestic scene, you know, why does the Netherlands have ODI status is kind of an interesting question. I mean, you can look at the UAE's women team who don't have ODI status and I would argue are a much better cricket team than the Netherlands. Um, but, you know, that that whole decision is, is one thing. Yeah, I mean... Playing more cricket will certainly help, but uh, head coach Shane Dietz will need to be looking not just at 
you know, the players that he's got in the squad and, and what can they do to improve, but also looking back home at the domestic scene and what can they do to try and get more of a playing base? Because at the moment, there's, you know, maybe 100 female cricketers in the Netherlands at a, you know, pretty optimistic estimate. And that's just not really enough to, to draw from to get a competitive team at this level. Let's head towards the East Asia Pacific region. A lot of things going on uh, in the game over the next two weeks, three weeks or so, and some, I suppose, bonus news. The worst-kept secret in associate cricket came out this week in in a departure of a men's head coach. We'll get to that in a second. But to start with Vanuatu, it's said to be a pretty big month of cricket in the region. And one of the reasons why Tim is not with us talking about it is that his team in Vanuatu are working really hard just to make sure everything is, is up and running for, again, what is set to be a truly busy period. Uh, they were part of an announcement with Cricket Australia and Cricket Papua New Guinea, uh, Pacific Partnership of Sorts, Pacific Oz Sport, linking the, the three in terms of uh, elite competitions. Uh, just like what PNG are doing in the uh, NT Strike, the Northern Territory competition, top end T20 competition, Vanuatu are set to compete in that in future years uh, as the bond between the three hopefully is a little bit stronger. Tim is pretty upbeat about that when we talked about it with him last, and I'm sure when we speak to him in future pods, he will talk about that in greater detail. They've launched uh, a splash program, a junior program, which will run from uh, the end of August to the start of September for under-19s, girls and boys national champs. And and one of the, the biggest events that Vanuatu will see in international cricket coming up in the next couple of weeks, the East Asia Pacific Qualifier A for the ICC Men's T20 World Cup 2024. A four-team tournament, Vanuatu, the hosts, Samoa, Fiji and the Cook Islands. Uh, a little bit of personal news with the old klaxon that uh, people use on Twitter every so often. I'll be there commentating the event, looking forward to it. Uh, set to be a, a great tournament and one which... Well, now I have to tune in. It, yeah, exactly. Even though it'll be about three <laughs> in the morning, your time in, in Iceland, unfortunately. But no, yeah, not looking forward to that. Uh, a historic moment for Vanuatu hosting the event. Playing on a hybrid surface, it'll be the first T20 internationals of its kind on uh, a hybrid surface, which makes that interesting. They've been cleared by the ICC to do that. Everything's above board there. But for several teams in the competition, it's the first time they'll be playing in T20 World Cup qualifiers uh, for the Cook Islands and Fiji. I believe it's their first T20 internationals with status, of course. A lot of them do have history that that goes back to the old Pacific Games and, and stuff like that. But... It's a pretty big tournament for for all four of these nations. Vanuatu have such pride in hosting the tournament and and just talking to Tim about it in the weeks leading up to it. You know, he's really looking forward to it. And yeah, he's working ultra hard to make sure it's it's ready to go. But it's a pretty historic moment for a number of these teams able to be on that that path to the, the T20 World Cup in 2024. And who knows, by some miracle, we will see the likes of Vanuatu playing in the USA and the West Indies in uh, in two years' time. Uh, to keep with the East Asia Pacific and to lead into our story, Carl Sandry has mutually agreed to a departure uh, as head coach of PNG. There was a few murmurs and a bit of chat in the months, even sort of last year or so, in, in regards to how the team was being run, came to a head. Uh, reportedly last week, we'd heard that the news had been broken then it was retracted and then cricket png came out this week and said that the the two parties had reached an agreement for him to go the team hasn't had a great record 
under Sandry. It has to be acknowledged too that the, the team's record, especially one day international cricket, even under Joe Dawes, wasn't particularly great and perhaps masqueraded by that World Cricket League 2 campaign that they sort of came from nowhere and claimed one day international status. But they did have that excellent T20 World Cup qualifier campaign under Joe Dawes. And we knew it was going to be a tough act to follow for whoever came into that role. But it seems as if it wasn't a good fit, both Sandry and and PNG. The two parties have parted ways. And I think the Barramundis can can move forward slightly refreshed. They've got a home one-day international tri-series coming up for League Two. The first one that they'll have hosted at Amini Park after the pandemic curtailed any chance of, of cricket in PNG during that. So there are good opportunities for PNG to step up even with this news. And I think the PNG players can feel a little bit more freed up perhaps, Nick. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, we saw some some tweets coming out about how the the Sandry decision was um was due to the basically player discontent and and um you know we've we've certainly heard reports that all was not well within the camp uh, in PNG. Sandry, yeah, as as you kind of allude to with with um a lot of the the pandemic stuff, he he was um he was struggling to get over there as much as he probably could have and then yeah a week later after all those reports we hear that it was a mutual decision which sounds a lot like your, your classic um you know breakup oh yeah it was mutual um <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah i don't know I, I mean i don't really understand why boards insist on 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 pretending i don't know clearly something was not going very well there i don't really understand why they need to sort of try and act like everything's fine and it, it was just all mutual and whatever uh, I think a bit more transparency would have been better in terms of building trust both with the players and and you know with fans more generally. But yeah, as you say, Carl Sandry's record not great. But then at the same time, yeah, PNG they they just have struggled, and um, this is something I guess it's kind of the opposite problem to Nepal in the sense that they have the exact same team um, more or less over that kind of last little period and and you know they, they keep getting the same results with the same players and maybe they'll shuffle the batting lineup a, a bit but it's the same guys going onto the field and you know they're, they're not winning very much and you know where does where does that domestic cricket come into it where is the production of, of the next generation of talent i know they uh, uh, you know a whole a whole under 19s team was kind of delayed Due to uh, the unfortunate circumstances, ah yes, um, uh, sort of a couple of years ago, but yeah, hopefully this, uh, you know, you alluded to that partnership with Cricket Australia and Pacific Oz Sport, um, so hopefully that can help grow the game a bit. But yeah, PNG are, are really struggling, I think, in in terms of their domestic stuff, and just swapping a head coach probably will help the atmosphere in, within the team, especially if it's true that. You know, it was motivated by you know player discontent and and friction between the players and the coaching staff. But at the same time, you know, just just swapping out the head coach isn't necessarily going to fix the fact that the same guys are basically making up the team and the same guys are not scoring runs and not taking wickets. And I mean, that's that's the fundamental problem for PNG is that they they just don't quite have the the, the talent coming through to replace the guys who haven't performed. Yeah, well summed up, Nick, and with the one-day international tri-series around the corner on home soil at Amini Park, it's a great opportunity for a number of the Barramundis to get in on the act on home soil and, and look to go out on that competition on a, a high of sorts. We know that they can't go any further than finishing from the bottom of League Two, so it will be the Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff for them uh, where they'll meet 
uh, the likes of the the winners of the Challenge League and the other members of the bottom four of League Two. But for now, that's all we've got time for on the Emerging Cricket Podcast this week. Thank you for joining me, as always, Nick, to talk all uh, things Emerging Cricket next week. I again, I'm not too sure what we're going to do. I might be in a remote part of the world, so uh, you might be talking to yourself for an hour unless uh, Tim is all ready to go on the uh, on the Pacific Island of Afate in Vanuatu, fingers crossed. But looking forward to chat Emerging Cricket uh, with all of you and uh, to keep up with news and events from the game's new world, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on social media as well as EmergingCricket.com, our website. But for now, on behalf of Nick and myself, Daniel Peswick, goodbye. <laughs>